This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dzogchen Panlap Rinpoche. Rinpoche is a widely celebrated Buddhist teacher and author of the book Rebel Buddha and Emotional Rescue, as well as other books. He's a lover of music, art, and urban culture, a poet, photographer, accomplished calligrapher, and visual artist, as well as a prolific author. Rinpoche is founder and president of Nalanda Bodhi, an international network of Buddhist centers, and is acknowledged as one of the foremost scholars and meditation masters of his generation in the Nyingma and Kagyu schools of Tibetan Buddhism. He is known for his sharp intellect, humor, and easygoing teaching style. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rinpoche and I spoke about his interest and commitment to developing a genuine Western Dharma tradition and how he works with his students when it comes to advising them on challenges with Western issues such as working with money and being in intimate relationships. We also talked about the teacher-student relationship in a modern context, and Rinpoche also told us stories of studying with his own teachers. Rinpoche answered the question, what is spiritual awakening? And he described three levels of awakening from his tradition. Finally, we talked about the current world situation and Rinpoche's new project, Go Kind. Here's my conversation with Dzogchen Panlap Rinpoche. Uh, to begin, Rinpoche, I just want to thank you for making the time for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. And I want to begin by asking something <clears throat> that feels a little edgy to me, but I'm curious <laughs> to know, here you are, you're a Rinpoche. <laughs> from my understanding means that you are a reincarnated, enlightened meditation master. And here at the beginning, I'm curious to know a little bit about what that's like for you, and if you have memories of past lives when you were a teacher. Oh, that's a very heavy-duty question <laughs> to begin with. Um, yes, uh, in as you know, in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there's uh, uh, we have this system of recognizing reincarnated lamas. And so I was recognized at a very young age um, as one of the reincarnated lamas. And uh, no, I cannot really say that I have uh, vivid or clear memories of any uh, past lives or 
anything like that. But, uh, you know, when I engage in study and practice, uh, certain things, uh, I feel very comfortable and uh, I learn them very um, pretty easily for me. So I felt that I had some kind of connection there. Mm-hmm. Can you tell mm-hmm. our listeners how you were recognized at a young age? What happened? Um, story I've heard <laughs> is that uh, before I was born, uh, my first teacher, His Holiness the 16th Kamampa, has uh, told my father that uh, I will be born. And so I was recognized uh, before I was born. And uh, that's the story I've heard, and I can't. I can't say that I've heard that because I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Rinpoche, you're known for having a gift for making Tibetan Buddhist wisdom accessible to Westerners and developing what could be called a genuine Western Dharma. And I'm curious mm-hmm. if you feel like you're carrying a certain kind of inner mandate, if you will, or a certain kind of torch in the world about a genuine Western Dharma and what that might mean to you? Yes. um, I feel a very strong connection to the Western culture and people in the West here. And uh, I have been here for a long time, and uh, one of my main effort here is to contribute whatever I can to um, to the establishment and founding of genuine Western Buddhism. And so I feel a very strong call inside uh, that I have this uh, um, responsibility uh, to some degree. Mm-hmm. Now, what we see in the West today, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this, is Mm -hmm. mindfulness as a practice Mm -hmm. being taken out of its Buddhist context and being introduced without any Buddhist language of any kind. You know, Mm -hmm. we have mindfulness Mm -hmm. in business, mindfulness in the education system, etc. I'm curious, what do you think about that? How does that land for you? Well, you know, I've been contemplating on that quite a bit. And uh, uh, I think it's not, uh, well, in some degree you could say that it's been taken out of context uh, uh, in terms of some of the uh, approaches that, you know, it has uh, taken. At the same time, um, when I look back to into the traditional Buddhist teaching, it is actually part of it. You know, Buddha taught that there are two approaches or two vehicles. One is a mundane vehicle, and then the other one is the vehicle that will lead oneself to awakening, complete awakening. And so I see some of the approaches here as part of the mundane vehicle, which Buddha taught uh, in terms of making one's uh, uh, future existence uh, more comfortable, more virtuous, and more uh, abundant 
with the wealth of uh, both physical and mental health. And so I see this, uh, uh, some of the approaches of the mindfulness that has uh, taken a different uh, uh, different route, so to speak, from, from, a, from the more kind of traditional Buddhist approach. Uh, I see that as, you know, part of this uh, first approach of Buddhist teaching, which is concerned about making uh, uh, our lives more mindful and more compassionate, more loving, and more, uh, in many ways, like, you know, more virtuous. Mm -hmm. What's required for the second vehicle, the vehicle of awakening, that people might not be being introduced to in just being introduced to the practice of secular mindfulness? What might be missing from this awakening process? Yes. Uh, what is uh, taught in the second approach here is a deeper sense of working with our mind and a deeper sense of working with our confusion and the roots of uh, uh, roots of our suffering. And so the second approach requires little more contemplation, more meditation, and little more sense of uh, acquiring the wisdom that is necessary for oneself to see one's own confusion and where it comes from. Now, Rinpoche, there was a period of time where I hosted a series called Waking Up, What Does It Really Mean? And believe it or not, I, I interviewed 23 different people for this series. And interestingly, I got 23 different answers about what spiritual awakening is. And that was, for me, such an eye-opener that it's not just one thing where everybody gives the same answer. So I'm curious to know from you, what is spiritual awakening to you? Um, for me, it's basically the uh, end of confusion, you know, and the end of ignorance through which I myself included, we create so much uh, um, causes of suffering for oneself and for others. So end of that confusion is the beginning of awakening. Hmm. Now, when you say the beginning of awakening, it sounds mm -hmm. like you're referring to different levels or that it's a continuing process of some kind. Can you speak to that? Uh, yes. Sometimes, you know, we, uh, we think of awakening as being just one moment. But actually, you know, it could be seen as many moments that lead us to one complete awakening. Because uh, it is difficult for oneself to gain a complete awakening right off the bat. And so, therefore, we may get little awakening here and there, which can lead us to the complete awakening. And so, for that reason, traditional Buddhist teachings say that uh, there are three levels of awakening. Can you uh, tell us what those three levels are? Mm, yes. Um, and three levels of awakening. Um, the first 
is seeing one's own confusion and freeing oneself from that. And secondly, seeing the, the, the illusion of the world outside, not just seeing the confusion or the delusion that goes within our heads, but also seeing the, uh, the appearances clearly, uh, the whole phenomenal world. And thirdly, then when we have these two together in one union, then there's the complete awakening. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, now I have a confession. I'm a little confused about confusion. Uh, <laughs> but what, what I mean is, when I hear you say this definition of seeing our own confusion, I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit for me. There's so many aspects, I think, that of confusion. I'm emotionally confused. I'm mentally confused. I don't understand this, that. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot we can talk about this confusion, but fundamentally speaking, the, the real confusion here, as Buddha taught, is our basic ignorance. You know, basic ignorance of uh, not seeing our own fundamental potential, not seeing our own wisdom and compassion. And due to our confusion, and then we get involved and caught up into duality of uh, good and bad, and then, you know, uh, friends and enemies, and so on. And through which, uh, when, when we engage in that, then we get more and more sucked in. And we get more emotions, then the emotions lead us to action, you know, verbal action, physical action, and then that action causes karma. And so at the end, you know, we are making our uh, we're making our own mind even more confused at the end in this process of thinking that we are actually uh, getting somewhere, but actually we are going backward. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Thank you. I'm not sure if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it did make sense. And, you know, one of the things I'm curious about, you said that you have this affinity with Westerners and teaching in the mm-hmm. West. And do you think that Westerners have a particular Western type of confusion, if you will, or certain mm-hmm. obstacles when it comes mm-hmm. to the path of Dharma that are unique to the mm-hmm. Western mind? Um, well, you know, there's no really like, you know, uh, Western confusion versus the confusions in, in the East. But what I, uh, what I understand or how I understand the Dharma is that, you know, due to our habits and uh, conditioning, then we have a different uh, way of seeing things or looking at things. And so, therefore, we have different uh, uh, habits that are based on the same confusion of ignorance. And so certainly, you know, I see some of the habitual uh, patterns in the West uh, and some of the sort of like neurosis, so to speak, here is uh, slightly different from some of the habits and neurosis in the East. Can you be more specific about that? Like what particular habits or conditioned ways of being? Um. Well, there's generally uh, different cultural backgrounds 
you know, that, you know, each cultural background is based on different uh, values and different sets of values and different sets of uh, norms. And so based on that, you know, we have different way of looking at things. You know, for example, like in the West, you know, we have this sense, especially in America, you know, since I live here, <laughs> uh, we have the sense of, you know, pride is basically something to be proud of, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's usually seen as something positive. And at the same time, I'm just generalizing this, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not. Uh, being specific here, but generally speaking, in the East, in many of the Eastern cultures, pride is seen as something negative. You know, people shouldn't have that sense of pride or being proud of something. And so you can see that basic premises is different here. And uh, based on that, we have different uh, mental afflictions developed. Uh, but you know, there's both pros and cons in each culture. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, being you know in the West and having this kind of culture, for example, saying okay, being proud is a good thing. It helps us to gain more sense of self confidence, and it makes us. Uh, it gives us a tool to achieve things, and so there's a positive things too. Whereas proud is seeing as a negative in the East, it also has some negative impacts, such as then people sometimes lacking, uh, lacking self-confidence or having the sense of uh, you know, always relying on others and so on. And so, therefore, I think it really depends on how we work with these neuroses. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I'm curious about is the quality of rebelliousness. You're the author of the book Rebel Buddha, a guide to a (laughs) revolution of mind. And when I think of Americans in particular, I think of this uh, holding up of the rebel quality. We're a a nation of, of rebels. And do you see rebelliousness as having positive qualities? And what might be the negative parts of rebelliousness that we want to be sure to steer clear of? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, I generally see, you know, uh, simply being rebellious doesn't mean positive or negative. And and the question here is how you direct that energy. And if that energy of being rebellious uh, contains any sense of wisdom or not, any sense of compassion or not. You know, when there's a sense of wisdom in this uh, heart of rebelliousness, then it's positive, in my opinion. And that's why I, I, I said in the book, too, that our our own Buddha Shakyamuni, he was a rebel, you know. And he has cut through so many cultural concepts, and he has cut through so much of uh, the cultural norms and status quo, and and found so many different ways to make our lives better and so many different ways to bring 
uh, equal rights, joy, and happiness in the community of that time. And it continues to do so. And so, therefore, the sense of uh, being rebel with a true heart of uh, wisdom and having the sense of uh, soft uh, heart of kindness, then it is a positive thing. But when this uh, rebellious heart becomes more tied to, not with wisdom or intellect, but uh, connected with uh, just emotion and uh, confusion, then it leads to a great suffering for not only for oneself, but for, you know, tremendous number of beings. Mm-hmm. Now, Rinpoche, I certainly feel your wisdom heart, and I'm curious to know in what ways are you a rebel? <laughs> oh, oh, well, I think, uh, I think embracing, uh, Western Buddhism is, I think, part of that, and uh, taking this journey outside of my own culture and adopting another culture. You know, I see that as uh, part of my rebellious journey here. And uh, I've always had this heart of uh, really searching for a genuine uh, teachings of the Buddha. You know, not just uh, cultural or a tradition, uh, but not just as a cultural tradition, but uh, finding the real wisdom and the message of the Buddha and his heart of compassion. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that kind of journey that I've taken uh, sometimes is uh, not necessarily uh, in line with the status quo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I think of this Western rebelliousness, I think some people have this yeah. idea, one way that that expresses, and it could even feel like intelligence, is mm-hmm. I'm on the spiritual path and I'll find out what's real for myself. I'm not sure I want to work with a teacher. There's so many stories yes. of teachers who have been I know. you know, involved in this scandal or that scandal. Do I really want to give my authority for my spiritual life to a teacher? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My question for you is, how do you see the role of a teacher given this landscape? Uh Yes, I think um, the first thing I've discovered here in the West is that uh, the, you know, general the Western audience is uh, far better educated than many of the people that uh, I grew up, you know, in my community in the East. And so, therefore, there are many things that, you know, Western students can learn on their own. You know, I don't see any problem with that. You know, taking that approach of learning Dharma on your own, uh, there's no problem in many uh, uh, situations. And at the same time, uh, you know, sometimes it becomes helpful to have someone who can share the experience of walking through the same path, you know. Like, 
like you know when we travel to some place you know we can just do it on ourselves you know without looking at lonely planet or without mm-hmm. you know relying on <laughs> any kind of guidebooks or anything and say i'm going to find myself you know and discover india and that will be very you know adventurous and uh, it will be a very interesting journey and at the same time if you talk to someone who's been there before right uh like the people who wrote lonely planet guidebooks or you know other guidebooks then you can learn something from that right from another person's journey and sometimes you can shortcut many of the things that you may have to spend time to learn on your own and so therefore um, i think there's a role for a teacher but what kind of a role that teacher might play in the west is still in process of for discovering mhm well that was a very balanced and open answer in terms of talking about you know traveling to another country but it it left mm-hmm. me wondering what about the function that i would refer to as transmission meaning some kind of communication of a state of being that isn't really something that can be described but the teacher communicates that state of wakefulness in, in some way what what about that function um I can only speak from my own experience right yes thank you you know I, I can speak for anyone else and so from my own experience I've benefited a lot from uh getting the direct teaching and transmission from my teachers um you know there's something there's something in there in my experience that that made uh, that made it that made these teachings more alive you know that made these instructions more alive and you know for me it's a little bit like you know uh, you know when you read about the uh, certain you know mystics uh, from the past you know uh, alchemy or magic <clears throat> or egyptian book of death or something like that and it is really hard to imagine the living quality of that you know we would have to guess a lot and have to kind of like you know spin our head around it but if there is a person who is uh, uh, who is uh, practicing that and have mastered it mastered that teaching for to a certain degree then it suddenly changes the dynamic you know so it it was something like that for me and i practiced on my own and studied on my own of course and at the same time when i in sitting with my teacher uh i felt tremendous uh sense of uh, a, a leap hmm You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com 
backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. I wonder, would you be able to share a story of an interaction with one of your great teachers where that leap was very alive for you? What happened? What was going on? Yes. Yes, I was practicing meditation for, of course, uh, for a while. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I have this uh, kind of struggle of sustaining it, you know. Uh, We can sit and meditate for a few minutes or whatever. Uh, and have a great experience, but to sustain that experience for a longer period of time has been a struggle for me. And so it was a long time ago, but uh, one day my teacher was teaching and I was taking notes as usual. You know, I'm quite uh, uh, precise with my notes and so on. And so uh, I was diligently taking notes, and then suddenly I realized that uh, this is a moment that I have with my teacher, so why don't I just sit here and experience his presence? And so I stopped taking notes, and I started to sit and meditate in his presence. And then suddenly I experienced that um, without even thinking, how to sustain it or not. Um, I came out of uh, my meditation and then I realized that it was different from my previous times of meditation. And then I learned or, or managed how to sustain it, uh, sustain this sense of uh, calmness and peace and joy. And so, you know, for example, that's one of my experiences. Mm-hmm. Now, I know, Rinpoche, that you had the chance in your life to study with Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche. And I wonder if you could share a little bit, maybe of a story of an exchange between you to bring him alive for our listeners in some way. Yes, uh, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, he was a very kind and... uh, of course, I need not mention about his mastery over study and practice, but he was a very kind person and kind teacher. And so I've studied with Rinpoche for a number of years. And one of my encounters with him was that I was really, really ill when I was young. I was in like a teenager. And then one day I received a letter in the mail from Kenzo Rinpoche. And uh, I was surprised to receive his letter. And so I opened the letter and there was his, uh, you know, letter expressing his concerns and wanting to know about my illnesses. And then at the same time, he, you know, he sent me a handwritten index card uh, with an instruction of how I can practice with my sickness. And so that was very <laughs> touching, uh, very touching. And and I was in India at that time, and I have not seen index card that much. And so I was also very kind of like, you know, fascinated by the fact 
of that it's on an index card. <laughs> and later on, when I came to the West, you know, index cards all over Office Depot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting, Rinpoche, as we talk about this function of the teacher. I noticed that mm-hmm. when you first described the travel guidebook approach, I, I could see mm-hmm. how many people from a Western mind would feel very comfortable with that. It's so mm-hmm. acceptable, open, logical. You know, this person's been there before, they can help you. And then I notice mm-hmm. as I hear you talk about your own experience with the great teachers you've studied with, there's a sort of devotional heart quality that mm-hmm. opens up in me that I would hate to get lost when we think of the future of genuine Western Dharma and the role of the teacher. So I think that's what I'm pondering, and I, and I wonder what your thoughts are about that. Yes, you know, I think um, we usually think of teachers uh, with the idea mixed with schools, colleges, and universities, as well as some, you know, religious uh, environment. But uh, a fact of the matter, in my experience of upbringing in the Buddhist culture, is that the teachers not only teach and meditate with you, but also they are very compassionate. And that's why I wanted to share that story of Dingo Kinsrumji. And so there's the sense of a mutual uh, kindness and mutual sense of trust in each other. And so, therefore, the devotion aspect here, in my opinion, is that it's a mutual trust that we develop. And the the most important quality of teachers, as my teacher told me, told me, was that uh, one must have a genuine compassion and a genuine care for others, and have the sense of uh, caring for others' welfare more than for yourself. And so if we have that kind of teacher, uh, I don't see how that teacher can be uh, negative impact on students. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, you know, uh, teacher-student relationship in the West, of course, is a very new thing. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding. And it is really important for students to check the teachers and their qualities, their track records, (laughs) so to speak. And then, you know, one must decide, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so there has to be good checking from the student's point of view, as well as teachers are instructed to check your own students, you know. Uh, and checking in the sense that if that student is suitable for you, you know, if there's something you can offer or not, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if the student's need is not something that you can offer, then you must redirect that person to another teacher uh, that if you know, if not, you know, you must tell the student that they may want to look for someone mm-hmm. that can provide them with what they need, you know. Mm-hmm. 
I'd be curious in your experience what kinds of things come up in students where you think, oh, I, I might need to redirect this person. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> there's so many different uh, things. Like some, uh, some are very interested in ritual, you know, uh, rituals and uh, uh, learning how to practice in Tibetan. Uh-huh. or any kind of Asian languages and so on. And those, I feel it's better they found another teacher, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in our community, we do practice everything in English, and we're trying to be part of the effort of establishing Western or American Buddhism. And so, uh, for example, you know, like uh, <laughs> we're not really into heavy-duty rituals here. And especially in a foreign language, and so uh, I had some situation where I felt like they are maybe better suited with going into some kind of traditional centers. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. helpful. Now, when we talk about something like American Dharma, Western Dharma, mm-hmm. one of the things I'm curious about is how you work with your students when challenges around, okay, I'm going to say it, money come up. Mm-hmm. Working with mm-hmm. money. Do you have dharmic teachings on that? Oh, <laughs> you know, we have this, uh, <clears throat> I think everybody knows the teachings on dana, uh, the practice of generosity. And also, I think it's really important for American uh, Buddhist communities to think about uh, that we need to function here uh, in the context or the culture of American uh, tradition here, you know. And so sometimes there's like a little bit of mix-up, you know, like in Asia, the way the money is handled is very different, right? You know, there's usually the culture or tradition of uh, lay communities supporting the uh, supporting the causes of Dharma. Like if there's a teaching, there are a lot of sponsors, big sponsors. And if there are some events, there's also big sponsors. The community just chips in naturally without even being, you know, asked sometimes. Whereas here, you know, we don't have that culture and we don't have that kind of uh, tradition here or, or Buddhist base. And so therefore it has to function in a different way, such as, you know, a lot of centers use the membership process or a lot of centers are using, uh, you know, fundraising events and so on. And so I think uh, we're getting a little mix up with like, you know, free Dharma in the East, you know, thinking that it has to be here in the West too, but without having, you know, some kind of uh, sponsorship there, you know. And so starting with the venue and starting with the, uh, a sound system and you know people who are volunteering or helping. There's always like you know certain costs that need to cover, which has to come from somewhere. Hmm. I've noticed as someone who's running a business here, sounds true, with 120 mm-hmm. employees, that sometimes my own sense of the bodhisattva vow and wanting to be Mm -hmm. generous towards others, and then my own desire 
for having an overflow of abundance in the business and in my own personal life as well, that sometimes I feel some confusion around all of that and how to find a sort of just and balanced view. I'm wondering what you might have to say about that. Mm, I think, you know, mm, it's very important for everyone to be comfortably supported, you know, uh, your living situation as well as your family and uh, aging parents' care and so on. You know, one needs to take care of that and that kind of support is very important. And on the other hand, then sometimes we may have extras. Uh, We may have extra resources. And sometimes we, if we don't look carefully, maybe we're just wasting our extra resources in things that are not necessarily needed or sometimes not even um, being mindful or careful about it. And so these resources are, you know, going into something that may not really benefit you or others at the end. So when you are in such a situation, I think it's important to prioritize and see if your resources can benefit some other sentient beings, or if your resources can be used in a way that can benefit oneself to develop deeper insight and deeper compassion. And so, therefore, I think, you know, uh, one of the things that becomes quite uh, important, and I think we all know that, is uh, how we prioritize. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful. Thank you. Now, another area that I'm sure you hear a lot about from your students is challenges in intimate relationships. And I read an article in which you wrote about intimate relationships as a great mirror. And I'm wondering how you work with your students, your Western students, on the challenges they face in their intimate relationships. I usually advise them... um, if it's like a, uh, if it's not really serious problem, you know, and if they have a, if, if I sense anything that's really serious, I usually recommend them for couples therapy or go to some professional help because uh, in the past I've tried my best to help people, and sometimes you know I see no results. You know, in fact, I uh, I, I just feel like I failed to help them. And then I realized that, you know, some of these things need actually more professional support. And so my usual approach to help them, if if it's not that serious problem, is that I say uh, that, you know, uh, in our Tibetan tradition, we say, when the relationships come together, it's like two circles, you know, uh, joined together, you know, halfway, right? Uh, and so when two circles come together, there's uh, some overlapping part. And that overlapping part of the circle is what we call relationship or family, you know. And that part, you you know, both uh, couple should take care uh, and then both couples should share 
But at the same time, there's two other halves left on each side, you know, which is actually something that uh, one another has to respect, that we must give space to each other in terms of their religious beliefs or in terms of their uh, hobbies, such as, you know, sports or, you know, their interest, uh, like maybe uh, going out and working in some kind of charity or whatnot. And so at the same time, these two uh, these two halves on each side are not totally unconnected. And so therefore you're bound by some sense of commitment here, you know. So you cannot say you're totally free to do anything. And so to find that balance, finding that balance is the key to having a, a healthy relationship in general. And not only that, but, you know, when we find difficult with each other, sometimes you must reflect inside to see, you know, if this difficulty is actually like a mirror showing my own fault sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. One thing I'd be curious about, Rinpoche, is that mm-hmm. in your own life, if it's okay to ask, when you aspire to bring the Dharma into every part of your life, is there an aspect of your life where you find that the most challenging for you? Mm. Yes. Yes, of course. Um... I find many places challenging, and <laughs> I don't know where to begin, so to speak. Uh, but you know, I'm usually, uh, I'm usually telling myself, like, oh, this is my opportunity. You know, if I can work on this one, then I can work with anything. And so, let's say, you know, uh, working with your family is challenging sometimes. You know, there's a lot of, uh, sometimes there's a lot of, uh, you know, emotional and uh, history, uh, baggage, uh, which sometimes are true and sometimes are a little bit exaggerated in my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you say working with your family, do you mean with your wife and um, if you have children? Is that what you're referring to? Uh, yes, and also like you know your uh, your own family. <laughs> you mean your your parents, your, own, your, your parents or brothers your, and sisters? Upbringing and things like that. Yeah. Uncles, what have you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting you said that you, when that happens, you see it as an opportunity. I mean, I think that's a very profound teaching right there. <laughs> yes, that's what I've been taught, and I'm trying to use that. Uh-huh. And I'm trying to, yes, and I'm trying to see, like, okay, when this comes up, you know, I must examine it. Uh, I must uh, analyze and ask questions and see how much of it is really uh, uh, true and how much of it is like maybe just my uh, my own spinning. 
Uh-huh. What kinds of questions, the kinds of questions you're just describing, asking what's inside you, what's inside the other person, what other way do you disentangle the confusion? Mm, first of all, you know, asking questions like, you know, when you say, oh, you know, this and this and this happened, right? And then you ask, um, I ask myself question like, is, is this really what happened or is this what I'm telling myself it happened, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's one thing that's been helpful for me. And second thing is to ask myself and say, like, mm, is this, like, how am I uh, interpreting now? Or are there, like, words that I remember or, you know, uh, images that are clear you know, asking these questions helped me to see um, see myself clearly. And sometimes I say, like, oh, yes, I remember something. <laughs> and the next day when I reflect, you know, I'm not sure about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm just talking about myself, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. One final thing mm-hmm. I wanted to talk mm-hmm. to you about in terms of mm-hmm. contemporary Western Dharma has to do with the concern I think that many of us have right now in our time. And it has to do with the world at large and deep concern about our current ecological crisis and race relations and fear of a nuclear war, that we're on the brink of a nuclear war. And I'm wondering what your senses of how our meditation practice, our dharma practice, can actually have the biggest social impact and what you see as the connection there? I think um, I always remember this line from my teacher, uh, 16 to come up. Uh, um, in the 70s, he was asked about the Cold War. And people were saying, like, oh, you know, there's going to be nuclear war anytime, and, you know, the world is ever getting worse, and so forth and so on, and asked him, what do you think? And after the interpreter finished translating, then my teacher, Sixteen Kamapar, burst into a great laughter, big laughter. <laughs> uh, and then he said, The world has always been like this, you know. And so I try to remember that and say, uh, as bad as as it is right now, but uh, it has been. It has been uh, pretty bad for a long time. And at the same time, it's been improving uh, for a while now. And so what I try to tell my friends is that most important thing for us is that we all uh, develop the sense of uh, genuine kindness for each other. Genuine kindness, you know, if two persons can develop kindness and then three persons can develop kindness, and if we can spread that kindness around the world, and then one day our world will be filled with kindness. You know, we need to take action, not just, uh, not only meditate or not only pr- 
pray, but we need to take actions. And so that's why I've been, uh, for me, you know, what I've been doing is I've been launching this campaign on Facebook, uh, you know, go kind, <laughs> go kind. Uh, and so that's one way for me to try to help with my meditation or my practice in this situation in the world. I didn't know you were launching a or that you're in the midst of a campaign called Go Kind on Facebook. What kinds of suggestions are you making to help people go kind? Uh, we're just starting it. And uh, <clears throat> for example, uh, you know, I've been suggesting to people that, you know, try to, let's say, you know, very simple thing, try to make someone smile today, you know, uh, and and ask ask the world, ask the people you see, you know, to spread that smile. And so, if one person can make three people smile, and then each one of three can make three persons smile, then someday we will fill the world with smile, smiley faces. And so, for example, that's one thing. The other thing is like we have different. Uh, uh, list of different things that they can do in each city, in each uh, community. And uh, yes, so we've been just, uh, we've just started this uh, this year, I think, yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, my final comment here is a little odd, but what I've noticed throughout this whole conversation, Rinpoche, is mm-hmm. your deep humility a real humility about you. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know if you feel that on the inside or what that's like when you hear me say that. I've always been like that, and some people think I'm goofy. Uh, and I feel that, you know, uh, humor is a very important piece of our life. You know, without humor, uh, our world would be much darker. And whenever there's a darkness in your life, you know, if you can bring a smile, if you crack a joke, you know, that will make everything much lighter, you know. And so, therefore, I think (laughs) the humor is very essential and very important in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I've been speaking with Dzogchen Panlap Rinpoche. He's the author of the book, Rebel Buddha, A Guide to a Revolution of Mind, and Emotional Rescue, How to Work with Your Emotions to Transform Hurt and Confusion into Energy that Empowers You. Rinpoche, thank you so much for your humor and your humility and your kindness and goodness. Thank you. Thank you so much for your good work. (laughs) Thank you so much, Danny. Thank you for having me here. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.